Amen. Good morning, church. Good to be with you all. Happy Super Bowl Sunday. Normally an uh, exciting time of year. I know a lot of us are disappointed the Lions didn't make it. A lot of us are disappointed that just football's over, you know? I start feeling it like three weeks ago when the conference championships are happening. It's like, oh, this is great, playoff football. And then it's like, actually, there's only three games left. This is terrible. Um, my wife, conversely, is really happy um, that our Saturday afternoons, our Sunday afternoons, our Saturday evenings, our Sunday evenings, you know, are now back. So, but I hope you guys have a good time. I hope you guys uh, have fun celebrating one another, this cultural moment that is Super Bowl Sunday. But for now, let's open God's Word together. If you have a copy of the Scriptures, we're in the book of Daniel one more time. Um, next week, we'll start a new sermon series uh, covering the events of the life of David, especially when he committed adultery. Um, and then we're going to spend several weeks in Psalm 51, um, how he responded uh, to that sin leading up to Easter. It's going to be really powerful. I'm looking forward to it. But for now, uh, the book of Daniel, chapter 6. Uh, you guys remember kind of buried in the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel is where you'll find it. And we are in chapter 6. You also remember I've mentioned this every time that this book takes place during the exile, during the Babylonian captivity, um, when God established his people way back in Genesis chapter 12, he called Abraham um, and promised him descendants, which he gave him, Isaac, Jacob, all the hundreds of thousands that followed under Moses. Um, he also promised him land, this little strip of land on the east of the Mediterranean Sea, we know it as the promised land. Um, well, God's people centuries later were invaded by the Babylonian Empire. They not only decimated uh, the land, they also carried God's people east, uh, eastward uh, to the capital city of the Babylonian Empire, a city known as Babylon. Um, in modern-day Iraq uh, is, is where the city was located. And that's essentially where Daniel's life was entirely lived out. Um, roughly 600 B.C. when the Babylonian captivity occurred to roughly 530 B.C., 70 years later, is where Daniel's life completely took place. That's when the book of Daniel happens. You remember the first four chapters, King Nebuchadnezzar is central to the story. Uh, king Nebuchadnezzar was the Babylonian king when they sacked Jerusalem and carried God's people away. Um, but he eventually dies. His reign ends at the end of chapter 4. His story's done. Then in chapter 5, one of his descendants is on the throne in Babylon, Belshazzar. Uh, but it's during his time as the king that the Medes and Persians invade. Um, the Babylonian Empire ends. The Medo-Persian Empire begins. Uh, centuries later, it's the Greek Empire that takes over. After that, the Roman Empire that takes over, and that's actually during the, time of Je during the time of Jesus. So that's all the movements of these great empires across history. Right now, we're at the end of the Babylonian Empire, the beginning of the Medo-Persian Empire, and that's when uh, God's people are going to be let out of exile and back to the Promised Land. But right now, they're still in exile under the Medes and Persians in this last chapter that we're going to study in the book of Daniel. Uh, but first, I want to ask you, uh, before I read the chapter, what could stop you from loving the thing you love the most? 
What could stop you from loving the thing you love the most? Or what could steal your commitment from the thing you are most committed to? In their 1967 song, Ain't No Mountain High, Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell celebrate this aspect of love, that it overcomes obstacles, you know? Ain't no mountain high, ain't no valley low, ain't no river wide enough, baby, to keep me from getting to you. No wind, no rain, no winter cold can stop me, baby, because you're my goal, they say. So they're celebrating. Thank you. My wife is horrified. (laughs) They're celebrating this aspect of love. They're declaring that their love endures. Their love won't stop. Another example of this. I have to say it just so I can make the claim that I reference this in a sermon. The 1987 smash hit and now classic by Rick Astley, Never Gonna Give You Up. You know how it goes. We're no strangers to love. You know the rules and so do I. A full commitment's what I'm thinking of. You wouldn't get this from any other guy. Sing it if you know it. I just want to tell you how I'm feeling. Gotta make you understand. Never going to give you up. Never going to let you down. Never going to run around and desert you. Yes. Even within the pop culture silliness, even within the pop culture silliness that is Rick Rowling, there's an expression of unstoppable love. There's this expression of enduring commitment. Man, my preaching professors would kill me (laughs) if they know. Oh, boy. But... Even though there's something that feels so right about expressing loyal love, even though there's something that feels so right about declaring our faithful commitment, we still know that oftentimes the most well-intended couples split up. Oftentimes the most loving parents are estranged from their kids. And passionate fans will sometimes give up on their team and loyal customers will move on and shop elsewhere. And most relevant for our purposes this morning, seemingly committed believers, seemingly faithful Christians walk away from God. It happens. Something feels so right about expressing loyal love like Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell do. Something feels so right about declaring faithful commitment to the object of our affection like Rick Astley does. But promises of loyalty get strained to the breaking point all the time, all around us. And the history of God's people shows us many instances when their loyalty to God was tested. Their commitment to God was strained. And certainly this happened during the exile. This was an incredibly discouraging time. This was an incredibly disheartening time for God's people. Their sacred temple was defiled. Their holy city was destroyed. Their enemy nations came and took them captive. So this could easily be a time where they say to one another, you know what, forget this. I'm done with God. I know we used to sing songs of devotion to God, but I've had enough. 
I know we used to declare our allegiance to God, but now I'm finished. I know I consecrated myself and my family to service of the Lord, but now I give up. Look around us. What's the point? I'm done. And it's into the midst of this situation, it's into the midst of this mindset that we receive the book of Daniel. And one of the constant themes of this book is a call for God's people to remain faithful. Through the sacred witness of these writings, God's people are called to remain faithful over and over. We see this in the book of Daniel. You think back to chapter 1. Daniel and his three comrades were given opportunity to eat the king's meat and so defile themselves, but they refused to compromise. Instead, they remained faithful, eating a diet that was in accordance with God's law, and God sustains their bodies. Or in chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are issued an edict from the king to worship the golden image. Instead, they keep their covenant promises to worship no false gods. And God saves them from the furnace. And now, in chapter 6, yet again, we see another example where Daniel is forced to the extreme, forced to demonstrate once more what will get him to stop loving the thing he loves the most. What will finally, what could finally steal his commitment from the thing he's most faithfully committed to? So let's read this chapter together. One thing to note is the word satrap that we'll see. It's probably an unknown word to most of us. Satrap just means some sort of governor, some sort of governing official. But Daniel chapter 6, verses 1 through 28, brothers and sisters, hear the words of our God. It pleased King Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps, to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three presidents, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other presidents and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set Daniel over the whole kingdom." Then the presidents and satraps sought to find a ground of complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because Daniel was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these satraps and presidents came by agreement to the king and said to the king, O King Darius, live forever. All the presidents of the kingdom, the prefects and satraps, the counselors and governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast in the den of lions." Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When, king Dar- when, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. 
Daniel got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who was one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but he makes petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. The king labored till the sun went down to rescue Daniel. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, No, O king. That is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, may your God whom you serve continually deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords that nothing might be changed according to Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to the king, and sleep fled from him. Then at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him and also before you, O king. I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him, because he trusted in his God. And the king commanded those men who had maliciously accused Daniel be brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed. His dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As we said before, the book of Daniel is a call for us to remain faithful despite discouragement, despite setbacks, and especially despite opposition. Remain faithful in your commitment to God. So the question we're asking as we walk back through this chapter is, what does faithfulness look like? 
Daniel here presents an example of what enduring faithfulness looks like. So we're asking, what is that example? What does faithfulness look like? And first, we're going to see that faithfulness exposes cultural opposition. Faithfulness exposes cultural opposition. You think back to the first several verses of the chapter, it's described for us how King Darius is arranging and structuring his government now that he's toppled the Babylonian empire. And perhaps because of Daniel's reputation of leadership and wisdom for the previous regime, King Darius makes Daniel one of his top three officials with plans to potentially rank him even higher. But as often happens in governments, Certain leaders get envious of Daniel and his favor with the king. They're envious of Daniel, and so they get ambitious to take him down. Verse 4 says that they sought to find ground for complaint against Daniel, but they could find none because he was faithful, and no error or fault was found in him. So these guys examine Daniel's life. They investigate how he lives in order to dig something up on him that they can use against him to tear him down. So they hack into his internet browser history, see if they can find anything sketchy. They scroll through his social media posts, see if they can find something regrettable that he's said or posted. Maybe they hired a private investigator to follow him around, see if they can catch him in some sort of compromising situation, but they got nothing. They can't pin this guy on anything. He's above reproach. He's a man of integrity. But even though they can't find anything wrong with Daniel's life to accuse him for, they do find out what Daniel loves the most. They do discover Daniel's first love. It's his God, the living God, the God of his fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Daniel is fully committed to him. So Daniel's accusers devise a plan to use Daniel's devotion to God against him. They convince King Darius to make a law that for 30 days, no one in all the empire is to worship any god except to worship the king himself. And if anyone fails to follow through on this, if anyone worships any other god during this 30-day stretch, they are to meet a swift death being tossed to a den of lions. And of course, they urge the king to make this law because they're certain Daniel won't obey it. And then finally, they'll have something on him. They'll have an accusation that sticks and they can bring him down. So you see how Daniel's faithfulness exposes, his faithfulness draws out opposition. Casper Ten Boom was a Dutch maker, was a Dutch watchmaker, excuse me during the early 20th century. And being a Christian, Casper opposed the purposes of Nazi Germany, especially the mistreatment and oppression of Jewish people. And in his home, Casper provided aid and support to Jews who were being hunted down. He even went so far as to wear a star of David in solidarity with the Jewish people. And then finally, in 1944, when Casper was 84 years old, The Gestapo raided his home in the Netherlands, arrested Casper, arrested his entire family for giving shelter to the Jews. And after just nine days of imprisonment, Casper died from illness. And then his daughter, who was imprisoned with him, her name was Corrie Ten Boom, 
She survived the concentration camps and later wrote what is now a famous book called The Hiding Place. It tells this whole story. But you see, Casper's Christian commitment, his loyalty to Christ compelled him to care for and protect all life. And it brought out the opposition that eventually took his own life. Because oftentimes the faithfulness of God's people exposes or draws out cultural opposition. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 13, the apostle tells the church, Do not be surprised, brothers, if the world hates you. And in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, in the context of discussing Christian persecution, Peter tells the church, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. So both apostles are saying, this isn't something that should catch you by surprise. This isn't something that should seem all that strange. You should be prepared for this. This should feel relatively normal. The world hates you. The world presents for you a fiery test as to whether you're really devoted to God or not. In the Gospel of John, chapter 15, verses 19 and 20, Jesus himself said to his disciples, If you were of the world, the world would love you as one of its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. This is not one of the promises that is in the little book of Jesus' precious promises, right? The world will persecute you. Bank on it. And then finally, because this verse is so powerful and clear, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, Paul says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All. So no one's exempt. And it's not even those who actually live a godly life. If you just desire to live a godly life, then that's all it takes to get you close enough to the flames of persecution to see if you're the real deal. Even the desire to be faithful will draw out opposition. Now, I understand, I, uh, I understand a lot of Christians hear these verses and they take it as license to go out in the world and be as obnoxious as possible, right? They take Jesus' words that the world will hate us and then they go act as hateable as possible. Like, we're going to kind of rub it in your face that the world hates Christians. You're all so terrible. Friends, that is not what these verses are meant to do. Rather, they are meant to prepare us. They are meant to sober us that we did not trust in Christ so that we could curry favor with the world. We did not decide to follow Jesus so that we could win popularity contests. No. When we put our trust in King Jesus, when we put our trust in his coming kingdom, we adopted a set of values that often conflict with our surrounding culture. And sometimes our surrounding culture is not going to tolerate it. As Daniel found out, 
And as Jesus himself later experienced, enduring faithfulness, loyal commitment. It sounds awesome. We sing songs about it. But when it comes to enduring faithfulness and loyal commitment to God, it will draw out. It will expose opposition. Don't be surprised. Secondly, what does faithfulness look like? It cultivates uncompromising character. Faithfulness cultivates uncompromising character. So you remember Daniel's enemies successfully urged the king to make this law that for 30 days no one is to worship any other god except to worship the king himself. Otherwise, you're thrown into the lion's den. And we're not completely sure the rationale behind this law. Perhaps they sold it to the king as a way to ensure the people's loyalty to him as king. And after all, it's only 30 days. So who can't set aside their commitment to God for 30 days, you know? Just don't go to church for 30 days. Just don't read your Bible for 30 days. Just don't pray for 30 days. Who can't do that? No big deal, right? It's just a temporary season to ensure the people's loyalty to the king, and then we can go back to normal. Who can't do that? No big deal. Well, Daniel can't do that. And for Daniel, it's a big deal. We're told in verse 10, when Daniel knew that the document for the law had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. So does Daniel want to break the laws of the empire? No. Does Daniel want to personally defy and defend the king? No. Does Daniel want to be thrown into the lion's den again and assuredly? No. Daniel is not trying to be obnoxious and gain attention and get persecuted and then whine about it in the public square. No, he's just living a peaceful, quiet life of godliness. But even still, humble as he was before others, dutiful as he was to the king, even still, his commitment to God and the laws of the land clash. And there's no question for Daniel which one wins out. He will not compromise his prayer time. He will not compromise his prayer time. Man, this is convicting. Because oftentimes I'm like, yeah, I'll pray if I think about it. Yeah, I'll pray if there's space in my schedule. Yeah, I'll pray if there aren't any good reels to watch on Instagram. Sure, I'll pray if all these things line up. But Daniel's like, yeah, I'll die for my prayer time. Three times a day, upstairs in front of the big bay windows, you can't miss me. You're going to have to take my life before you take my prayer time. I'm telling you guys, name your sons Daniel. Name your daughters Danielle. This guy's amazing. He does not play around. Because he's cultivated uncompromising character. Now, how does Daniel get to this point? How did Daniel get to this place of such resolve? Well, I think we're given a clue in the last phrase of verse 10. Listen to that verse again. 
when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he went to his house. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. As he had done previously. You see, Daniel had flexed the muscle of faithfulness over and over and over again so that when the test of his faithfulness came, the king and his law and his lions didn't stand a chance. Daniel was consistent and diligent when persecution wasn't high so that when persecution picked up, he didn't flinch. Again, this is Super Bowl Sunday. Joe was right. We have to have a football reference, surely. So this all makes me think about an interview I heard recently with a kicker. He was asked about the pressure that kickers feel for the big kick, you know. Game is on the line, seconds left, down two points. A field goal wins it, a missed kick loses it. It's all riding on this one player, either glory and celebration or shame and misery. The interviewer asked the kicker, you know, tell me about that pressure. What does it feel like? How do you deal with it? And the guy said, you know, no, I, I don't really feel it. Because every day, all we do is prepare for that kick. Every day at practice, we're visualizing that moment. Every day at practice, we're psychologically going to that place of pressure and intensity and focus. Every day, we're honing our craft bit by bit, movement by movement, breath by breath, just doing the same old things over and over so that it becomes as automatic as absolutely possible. That's why some random kicker can't just come out of the stands, give it a whale with his foot, and expect the ball to fly far and straight, right? Because it's the daily, regular discipline that creates the muscle memory so that it becomes as automatic as absolutely possible. Well, I think we can say something similar about Daniel. He is not... He, he was a spiritual giant, not because he had crazy, amazing spiritual gifts. He was a spiritual giant, not because he saw God do amazing, miraculous things. No, he was a spiritual giant because of the small stuff done over and over and over. Author and pastor David Mathis calls them habits of grace. They're these sanctified routines that create a spiritual muscle memory of faithfulness. In this case, we're specifically talking about Daniel's prayer life. Daily set times of prayer, likely morning, noon, and evening. But there are other practices, regular scripture reading, weekly corporate worship, spiritual fellowship with brothers and sisters. And there's not always some grand, extravagant experience when you do any one of these things, but it just slowly builds up the life of faithfulness and consistent devotion so that when the flames of persecution pick up, you're ready. Now, this example doesn't perfectly align, but there's enough overlap that I think it could be helpful. I remember when I was 19 years old, I left home after high school and was attending university, and I was not a believer at all. In no way, shape, or form was I following Jesus. And very quickly, Sunday morning, 
became a way to recover from Saturday night, if you know what I mean. But as unbelieving as I was, as uncaring as I was toward God, I still felt the need for some sort of spiritual influence in my life. I still felt this like reflexive desire to have some sort of gathering related to spiritual things in my life. So when a campus ministry worker invited me to attend a midweek Bible study, I immediately took him up on it. Like, I don't believe any of this. I don't really care for it. But there's something in me. There's this instinctive sense that I need that. You know what? I went to one of these Bible studies and actually got saved. I heard the gospel and by God's grace came alive through Jesus. But where did that reflexive desire go to church come from? Where did that instinctive desire to say yes to the Bible study come from? Did it just happen overnight? Did it just happen to occur to me? Oh, I need to go to a Bible study. No. That reflexive desire to go to church, to go to a Bible study, came from 18 years of Sunday mornings growing up in my house and my mom saying, CT, wake up, get dressed, we're going to church. And it just slowly seeped into my soul. We go to church in this family, honey. That's my mom's sweet southern accent. Her words on Sunday morning didn't always sound that sweet. But it just slowly dripped into my soul. We go to church in this family, honey. Now listen, I'm not saying we need to angrily force our kids to go to church. I'm not saying we need to be guilted into set times of prayer each day. I'm just making the point that courageous, uncompromised character like Daniel's is slowly cultivated over the course of time by doing the small stuff that becomes routine stuff and it just gets built into your soul so that you can't even help but to follow through on it. And so you slowly create this spiritual muscle memory that enables you to live a life of faithfulness. And so I have to ask, what is it for you? Is it creating a routine time of prayer? Is it making space in your schedule for scripture reading? Is it setting a habit of weekly corporate worship? Is it creating a rhythm of being in spiritual fellowship or community? Well, whatever it is, I would encourage you, don't try to tackle all these things at once. Just examine your life, ask the Lord for guidance, and land on one habit that you need to put intentional effort towards. Faithfulness draws out cultural opposition. Faithfulness cultivates uncompromising character. And finally, faithfulness reveals divine deliverance. Our faithfulness reveals God's deliverance. Just as God sustained Daniel on the vegetarian diet in chapter 1, just as God saved the three friends from the fiery furnace in chapter 3, so now God delivers Daniel from the wrath of the lions. Verse 23 says that Daniel was taken up out of the den. No kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. You've got to get this, church. 
God did not save Daniel because he was a good Jew. God did not save Daniel because he was a moral man. God did not save Daniel because he was a religious man. The text says that Daniel was saved because he had trusted in his God. Yes, a life of faithfulness means that we live faithfully. We live obediently and dedicated lives to God. But the foundation of our obedience... The foundation of our faithful living is trust in God. That's why he saves us. Not because we impress him with our good works. Not because we impress him with our spiritual devotion. No, he saves us by grace through faith. He saves us when we trust in what he's done to save us, not in what we can do to save ourselves. And the ultimate act of deliverance was not Daniel being lifted out of the lion's den. The ultimate act of deliverance was when Jesus was lifted out of his grave. The ultimate act of deliverance is not when Daniel was spared the wrath of the lions. The ultimate act of deliverance was when Jesus was not spared the wrath of God. No, he suffered God's judgment on the cross for our sins, and yet still, death could not hold him. That is what God has done to deliver us. That is what we could never do to save ourselves. And so I call on you, like Daniel, put your trust in God. Through Jesus, God will deliver you from the power of death. Through Jesus, God will deliver you from the power of sin. And through Jesus, God will empower you to overcome opposition and live a life of enduring faithfulness. May the Lord help us. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Church, let's stand as we respond to God's word together. And I will pray for us. Our Father in heaven, we pray to you in the name of our risen King. God, we pray to you in the name of our exalted Savior, the one who was lifted out of the grave, the one who ascended on high and now reigns supreme forever from heaven. We worship you, King of kings, Lord of lords. Nebuchadnezzar came and went. Belshazzar came and went. Darius came and went. And emperor after emperor, king after king, president after president has had his rise, and had his fall. But Lord, we thank you for the enduring, unshakable throne of King Jesus that has no end. God, would you strengthen your people? We are citizens of heaven, but we sojourn still on earth. And so we ask that the ancient sacred witness of Daniel's story would encourage us on our pilgrimage Will we look back at our forefather in the faith and be encouraged, be inspired to continue to march on through the highest 
valleys, through the highest mountain, through the deepest valley, God, may we continue to persevere, to endure in our commitment to you. Father, I pray that all of our voices now would be united in praise to you. You are worthy. No matter what any king says, no matter what any governor says, no matter what any president says, God, I pray that you would strengthen the heart and resolve of your people to worship you with full strength, with full joy, God. May we right now step into this opportunity to do what is limited and restricted for so many of our brothers and sisters around the world, for so many of our fellow believers throughout history. Kings have tried to shut their mouths but your people have continued to praise. God, may we do so now to you, the high King of heaven, Jesus, and your loving spirit. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.